All right, so good morning. Happy Easter, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. Jesus is alive. Amen. Wow. Some of you guys are missing the point of Easter. <laughs> Jesus is alive. Amen. He is alive. He is the firstborn of those raised from the dead in righteousness. Jesus came and became a human being so that he could open the door for all of us to be alive forever. So when we say that Jesus is alive, that is a huge sign of hope for us. Because guess what? It means we get to be alive too. And that's exciting. So, Jesus is alive. Amen. Is that exciting? Yes. Good. It should be exciting. Hey, turn with me really quickly to Acts 17, starting in verse 19. Acts 17, starting in verse 19. And as you turn, I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for the day that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bodily resurrected from the dead, given a new body, and, and seated at your right hand forever. And all the kingdoms of the world have been placed under his feet. And we thank you for that, God. Open our hearts and minds this morning to understand the exciting news that Jesus is alive. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Acts 17, starting in verse 19, this is part of the story of where Paul, during his travels, he goes to Athens, okay? And he actually sent his, uh, the people that traveled with him, he sent them a different way, and he comes to Athens by himself. And when he gets there, he's very uh, impressed by how religious the Athenians are. And he starts teaching about Jesus in the town square in Athens, all right? And it says that the people the people there in Athens started listening to him when he was in the Areopagus, which is a place where teachers would go. And it says in verse 19, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now it says in verse 21, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. These uh, scholars, I'm actually going to move this because it's kind of between me and you guys, and I don't like that. These scholars, these thinkers, these intellectuals were consumed with, obsessed with constantly hearing the latest thing. And nowadays, it seems like a lot of teachers, even in the church, are constantly trying to come up with some new thing that no one has ever heard before. Okay, They, they go through the scriptures and they try and come up with some new truth out of the scriptures that no one has ever heard before. Um, some kind of new news about Jesus, some kind of new understanding about Jesus. Okay, they, they almost treat Jesus like he's a new car. Like car manufacturers will try and come up with some new thing about their car that they can use to sell their car. And a lot of teachers are trying to come up with new things out of the Bible um, to excite everyone, and I, I, don't, I guess to sell them something new about Jesus. 
This really comes from our culture because in our culture, just like the Athenian intellectuals, we are consumed and obsessed with everything new. In fact, advertising has taught us that we should think that anything new must be good. Anything new must be better than what was old. Well, if you have ever bought a modern washing machine, I can tell you that some of the old washing machines are better than the new ones. Because they're made with better parts. So it's not always true that what is new is better. Uh, but that is something that actually gets into our churches. In fact, there's a whole group of teachers and authors who call themselves progressive Christians. And they call themselves that because they believe that humanity is progressing. That we're evolving. That we're getting better. That we're learning to understand truth better and more fully than people did in the past. And they reject historic Christian teaching because they think that humanity is in, has evolved to a higher state of understanding. And now we can understand things about God and understand things about what the Bible is saying better than the people that actually lived it do. Can I say something to you guys? Be cautious of any teaching that comes across as exalting the evolution of human beings. Be very, very cautious of any teaching, any teacher or author or person who starts talking about how human beings are getting better on their own. That we're better now than we were before. Listen, we have more technology now than we had before, but human beings are not getting better than they were before. Yeah. I had a, a person that I knew one time, somebody that I worked for, have a great deal of respect for him in many ways, but one day while I was working at that company, I had made a comment that it was the 400th birthday of Shakespeare. And uh, talking about how that day was the 400th birthday. And this person looked at me and said, well, I don't understand why people still read Shakespeare. I mean, he was 400 years ago. How can anything he has to say still be applicable to people today? And he said this and believed this because he believed that human beings had evolved. That human beings had progressed. That human beings were different now than they were in Shakespeare's day. Can I tell you something? Human beings, our needs, our desires, the way we behave, um, our psychology is not any different today than it was 400 years ago. It's not any different today than it was 1,400 years ago. It's not any different today than it was 4,000 years ago. When they pull clay tablets out of the dirt with ancient writing on them, do you know what it talks about? It talks about business deals. It talks about um, people trying to steal stuff. It talks about the same things that we talk about today. It's just that then they put it on clay tablets. Now we put it on social media. Yeah. But human beings are not evolving. They're not getting better. We're getting faster, but we're not getting better. We have more technology. We're able to kill people faster. 
We're able to destroy reputations much more quickly. On the other hand, we also have technology that we can get food to hungry people faster. So we can do things faster, but our core needs and the way we respond to our core needs has not changed in all of the history of mankind. And anyone who comes to you and tells you that we are different than our ancestors were, that somehow we have a better understanding of reality than our ancestors had, be very, very cautious. Rachel? But doesn't the mere fact that we have that technology make us smarter because we were nope. smart enough to develop that technology? Nope. It, makes us, it means that we, have un, we understand more about science and about the universe around us, okay. but it does not mean we are smarter. Okay. Do you know that in the early days of the United States of America when we were still colonies, in order to get into the, uh, the institutions of higher education, in order to get into college, do you know what the average age was of a young man starting college? It's like 16, wasn't it? 15. Okay. And do you know that he had to understand Latin? Hmm. I did not. One of, the, one of the tests for one of the entries into college at that time was that a young man had to be able to take a passage of scripture from the New Testament, transfer it, translate it from the Greek to the Latin to the English and back to the Greek. Okay? So we're not smarter than we were back then. In fact, in ancient times, do you know that they didn't even use writing? Do you know why they didn't write everything down? It's their memories. Because they had people that would remember. When men, when the old men of a city or a nation state would come together to make decisions or have discussions, they would bring young men in who would memorize the conversation word for word. And it was passed on from one person to another. It wasn't necessarily written down. In fact, the book of Job was originally just memorized. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, the young man who speaks up at the end, I think he was Eliphaz, I think, who speaks up at the end because Job starts by talking about Job and his three friends. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this young man that just springs up and starts talking. And some scholars believe that he had been brought to the conversation to memorize it mm. so that it could be passed on to future generations. Okay? And so, no, we're actually not any smarter than we were before. In fact, in many ways, technology has made us less intelligent. Mm -hmm. We use less of our mental abilities because mm -hmm. we have these crutches. All right? And so it, we're not smarter than we used to be. And if anybody comes and starts teaching something that's based on the idea that we're smarter than we used to be, be very, very cautious. Okay? Yeah. I have to also tell you that I'm even nervous about some of the teaching that's coming into churches nowadays. Okay? That's not progressive Christian but that says that the church is ascending to new levels of power. When I read the scriptures, I see that Jesus is worthy of power. Jesus is worthy of all the honor and glory and all the praise. And that Jesus is the one who wields his power. And I get nervous when preachers talk about how the church is going to get more and more powerful and have more and more authority in the earth. That makes me nervous because really what they're saying is that we're getting better. Mm 
that somehow we have more understanding about the scriptures than the people who wrote them. That we have more understanding about what God wants to do than the people that God spoke to to write the Bible. Yes. If we can understand more parts of science, though, and more parts of the universe, why can't we understand more parts about the gospel? Because the gospel is made very simple on purpose. Okay. In fact, Paul talks about how the gospel seems to be foolishness. But God made the gospel very simple because he wants everyone to be able to understand it. Hmm. And there's no secret hidden in the gospel. And these teachers that come out that say, well, we're smarter than we were, than we were back then, and we understand more things, what they do is they come in and they say there's actually secret meaning in the gospel. There's secrets that God hid in there, and I'm going to reveal those secrets to you. And whether it's a progressive Christian or it's some of these other people in the church that are talking about how we're smarter, they're always going to tell you that there's things in the gospel that our ancestors didn't understand. There's secrets hidden in there. They pulled the secrets out, and they're going to show them to you, like a brand new car or a new piece of technology, and it's going to be awesome, and everybody gets all excited. That makes me nervous. That makes me really, really nervous. So today I'm going to talk about the story of the gospel. I'm not going to take a long time to do it, but I'm going to talk about the fundamental foundational principle of the good news of Jesus that we have to accept and that these other people, the, these other people who feel like, in fact, just about any other religion rejects this fundamental principle, okay? Mm -hmm. And when I think about it, um, I think that what it reminds me of is it reminds me of uh, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Hmm. I don't know if any of you guys have ever actually read, have you read the book or the story The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? Hmm. It is a really great read, by the way. It is hilarious. <laughs> it really is. Charles Dickens was really, really funny. And it's a super short read. But it starts off, you know, we're going to talk about the basic principle that we have to understand if we're going to understand the gospel. And this is a principle that just about every other religion rejects, okay? And, but it reminds me of the very first couple paragraphs of A Christmas Carol. So I'm going to read you the very first paragraph of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It starts like this. Marley was dead. To begin with. Isn't that a great way to start a story? Because your brain just goes, what? You're starting a story with a dead guy? What? Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. So four people had certified that Marley was dead. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. So he starts off by saying, Marley is dead, and here are five people that can testify that Marley was dead. And he ends by saying, he ends that paragraph saying, Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Now, the cool thing about Dickens is the whole next paragraph is all about the validity of how dead a doornail can be, which is really kind of funny and cool. 
But then he gets back to the subject at hand, and in the third paragraph he says, There is no dart that no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am about to relate. So what he's saying is, nothing about this story is amazing unless you understand from the very beginning that Marley was dead. It's certified. It's authorized. He was double, triple, quadruple, and pentiple, if that's a word, <laughs> checked, and he was dead. And unless you understand that, nothing else about this story will be wonderful to you. This reminds me of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells it, and I will tell you why. Because before we can understand the gospel, before we can appreciate the wonder and miraculous nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, before the soil of our souls can be good soil for the gospel to come into and germinate and produce a harvest, there is one thing that you and I must understand, acknowledge, and embrace. We are dead. Human beings are dead, spiritually dead. Now that doesn't mean they don't make a lot of noise. And it doesn't mean they get up they don't get up to a lot of mischief, okay? Because they have a physical life. But the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ must start with the understanding that outside of Jesus we are spiritually dead. We are dead as a doornail. Dead, dead, <coughs> dead. Our spirits, the eternal part of us, is dead. John? That's why scripture starts off with God created heaven and earth, God created man, and then man died. Yes. We are dead. Now listen, I believe in zombies. I absolutely believe in the walking dead. The problem is that zombies aren't something that's going to happen in the future. Zombies is something that began in the garden. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, they became the living dead. Their eternal destiny is death. Because really, death just means separation. That's all it means. When somebody dies here... On earth, they don't cease to exist. They're just separated from the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And that's why we mourn, because they're separated from the rest of us. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when we are spiritually dead, we are separated from God. And the Bible clearly tells us that every single one of us is spiritually dead, separated from God. And if we don't start with that, nothing wonderful will come of the tale that we're about to tell. If we don't start with, I am dead, nothing else will be wonderful. Guys, this is one of the reasons why we need the Bible, because we're dead. Our spirits are dead. The only part of us that can commune with God, the only part of us that can, that can uh, commune with the source of truth is dead. 
We are cut off from truth and our minds and bodies are in charge. <clears throat> when your spirit is dead, your mind and body are all that's left and they are in charge. Your mind and body decide what is true and what is not true. And so, our idea of truth is never based on the truth of God's character because the only part of us that can obtain that truth is dead. We're cut off from it. <clears throat> so when our mind and body are the only parts that have control, then anything that we decide is true is based on what we want. And it's based on our own limited perspective. And what ends up happening is we decide that what is true is what makes me feel good. It's what makes me feel better about myself. That must be what is true. And listen, please, please listen. Any teacher or preacher or author or blogger or any other source of information, anyone who teaches you things to make you feel better about yourself outside of Christ are always to be suspected. Mm -hmm. Always to be suspected. The Bible tells us that your value is only in the fact that God loves you. That's your only source of value. It's not in anything you can do. It's not anything you can say. Your only source of value is that God loves you. Now the good news is he's the one who has the value. He's the one who determines your worth. But your worth is in the fact that you are loved by God, period. <clears throat> so the fundamental difference between biblical Christianity and progressive Christianity or any other religion, really, is that <clears throat> we are dead. We have no life in our spirits. We have no ability to get out of our dead beginning. Yeah. We have no way to pull ourselves up. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's a very, very old saying. And in reality, can you really pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Nope. No, you can't grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up. It's physically impossible. Guess what? It's spiritually impossible too. <laughs> we have no hope. We are dead, 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 dead. The Bible tells us that we are dead. We are flatlined. We have no life in our spirit whatsoever. Other religions and teachings will claim that to some extent or another, we're okay. We're okay. And when you read progressive Christian teaching, they tell you, really, you're okay. You don't have sin. You don't have sin. You only think you have sin, and that's what separates you from God. You're not understanding correctly. And they, they reject any part of the scripture that says differently because they say we've progressed and we understand truth better than they did. And you're really okay. You don't have sin. You're only separated from God by your own shame. But really, you're okay. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches, and it is not true. It appeals to our dead nature. It appeals to our mind and our bodies because I would love to say, you know what, I'm okay, I don't need anybody. I don't need any help. 
I can make it. And every religion tells you that somehow, by some way, you can scrape your way closer to God or truth. There are even some religions that say, yes, you need the blood of Jesus, but you have the ability to come this far and the blood of Jesus takes you the rest of the way. Yeah. No, you're dead. Yeah. You are dead. You have no more ability to make your way closer to God then a corpse has its ability to make its way closer to Walmart. You are dead. Flatlined. Your spirit is dead. That is why Jesus came. Remember what I preached about a few weeks ago. Jesus comes into our mess. He finds us dead in our mess and he comes in. And then we turn. That's it. We turn to him. And we acknowledge that we are dead and that we need his salvation and we receive what he offers us. Yeah. But every other religion, every other teaching will tell you that to some extent or another, either you can make your way all the way to truth in God or you make your way part way to truth in God and God comes in and meets you the rest of the way. No, you are dead. That's what the Bible says. Listen, Jesus did not come to show us how to be better people and find our way to God. That's not the truth. Jesus came to bring us from death back into life. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now we can go, we can go to a dozen different scriptures, but we don't have time today. <laughs> we have some people coming over for Easter, and so we don't have time to go into all the scriptures that talk about this. So I'm just going to cover, cover a few passages. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says to the Ephesians, And you were, what? Made alive. You were dead. Depends on which version you're living. Yeah, sorry, I'm reading <laughs> in the new, uh, sorry, the ESV. Cannot you were dead in your, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Dead. And that other version says you were made alive because you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. I'm sorry, how many of us once lived? All. all in which we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm sorry, is that somehow unclear, or is that pretty clear that we were dead? That's pretty clear, yeah. And that we were living by what our body and our mind told us. Can I inform you of something in case you aren't aware? Your body and your mind will always tell you to do what's best for you, no matter what it's like for anybody else. Mm -hmm. In fact, your body and mind won't even tell you to do what's best for you. They will tell you to do what makes them feel best, what makes them feel good. If you have to choose whether to eat vegetables or just eat greasy french fries all the time, your body is going to tell you to eat the greasy french fries because it makes it feel better initially. Yeah. Okay? 
an addict who has tried cocaine, their body and their mind will tell them to take more cocaine. And this is what it's talking about here. That we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Everybody starts off dead. You are born dead. Dead, dead, dead in your trespasses mm -hmm. and your sins. Mm -hmm. And then we have the good news of Easter. Verse 4. What are the first two words in verse 4? But God. But God. Now before we can go into the rest of this, before there's any wonder, before there's any happiness, before there's any celebration in the rest of this passage, just like in the Christmas carol, we have to start with, we were dead. Dead. Lost. Unable to do anything about it. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead <coughs> in our trespasses. What did he do? He brought us back to life. Yeah, what does it say? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do, Peter? Read it. Made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. Yes. Listen, if you have adopted an idea that you were mostly okay, that you weren't dead in sin then the whole purpose that Jesus came will not be wonderful to you. Does that make sense? If you are convinced in your mind that somehow you don't need to be saved, that you don't need to be brought back from the dead, then none of this will be amazing to you. And all that's left is to try to be a better person, which always, always fails. Thank you for the water, baby. So it is imperative that just like in the Christmas carol, we've got to embrace the truth that we were dead, lost, trapped, chained to our bodies and minds, chained to our sin and to our trespasses. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, does that say... Because we somehow tried harder? No. Does it say because we were really okay, we just didn't know it? No, it says only because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Peter throws that in like one more nail in the coffin. Yeah. Boom, boom. Uh, in the coffin of the idea that somehow you did it. Yeah. That somehow you made yourself worthy enough. He throws one more nail on that coffin and says, Nope, you were dead. It's by grace you have been saved. That's it. Only by grace because of his love. That's it. Verse 6, And raised us up with him. Guys, this is the wonder this is the amazing news, the good news of the gospel that we can actually understand if we start with the fact that we were dead, 
Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated, with, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's another nail. Boom! Yeah. You don't do it yourself. You're incapable. You can't make it happen. He throws another nail in that coffin. You were dead. And this is not your own doing. Another nail. Boom. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. Boom. Another nail. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you realize that even now that you're following Jesus, that your good works aren't even your own? God prepared the good works. Once you start following Jesus and start acting like him, you're transformed into his image. You start doing good works. Do you realize they're still not your good works? They were prepared beforehand, and all we do is walk in them. They were already prepared. All we do is walk in them. So God, for instance, Daniel, does a lot of work with the homeless. Do you realize, Daniel, that when you're making sandwiches and meals, do you realize God prepared all that ahead of time and all you're doing is walking in what he prepared ahead of time? When you go down there and you pray with those people and you talk to them and you treat them like human beings and you love on those people, do you realize you're not even doing it? It's not even you. God prepared it beforehand and you're just walking in what he already prepared beforehand. You're just filling the balloon. You're just filling the shape. There was already a need there. God created the provision for those people and you're just walking in it. Boom, another nail. We're dead and only brought alive it through with Christ Jesus through faith. Yes, Rachel? This might be a little bit of a rabbit hole, but why should we even try to do good works then if they're just going to be Jesus's anyway? Because it's all about his glory, not ours. Oh. Why wouldn't we do them? Yeah. You know? Because if we, if we look at it and say, well, it's just Jesus is just going to get the glory, why should I do it? Well, then whose glory are we worried about? Hmm. Ours. Yeah. And it's not about our glory. It's about His glory. It's about Jesus. That's why I have trouble with churches who and, and teachers who preach that, oh, the church is rising up triumphant. No, 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 no. Jesus is triumphant. I'm not triumphant. I am not triumphant. Jesus is triumphant. I don't want to be triumphant. You know why? I'll mess it up. <laughs> yeah. I will mess it up. Listen, I, we all constantly live in that tension between, um, you know, our our still being in the earth, still fighting our flesh, and walking in perfection and being uh, transformed into the image of Christ. We walk in that tension our whole lives. We had, a, we had a faithful, faithful man of God as a part of our church in Abilene. And he was in his late 80s. And he would tell you, you're constantly, no matter how old you get, you're walking between those two things. You're still learning. God's still teaching you. He's still growing you. Why would I be triumphant? Jesus is triumphant. They're his works, and I just walk in them. Yeah. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door to the Father. That means we don't even make a few steps toward the Father without Jesus. It is all about Jesus. We start out dead. And if we don't accept that fact first, there will be no wonder in all the rest of the story that we're telling. Guys, this is the only true gospel of Jesus, the only true good news. Romans 5, starting in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak... Some translations say helpless. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. Remember, we were dead. That means separated, spiritually dead. We were separated from God. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm sorry, does that blow anybody else away? If it doesn't, you're not thinking about it right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dead, lost, dead in our transformation, Aggressions and in our sins and our trespasses, Jesus died for us. Since then, and again, now we start in verse 9. This is the good news. But unless you accept that you were dead and lost and a sinner, you can't see the wonder in what comes next. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Y'all, this is why Easter is exciting. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an exciting thing. And if you don't understand that you were dead, lost, cut off from God, before you hear the Easter story, there's nothing to be excited about. There's nothing wonderful about it. But if you realize that you were dead, lost, cut off from God, and in the middle of your dead status, in the middle of your death, your your spiritual corpse, Christ died for you. And Jesus came down and reconciled you to himself through the blood of Jesus. Whoa, now it's exciting. Now it's exciting. This is what we celebrate for Easter. We were dead and Jesus came down and died for us. Paid the penalty for the sin that had killed us and redeemed us to God. And then he rose again from the dead. In the first century they had a hymn. And Paul quotes this hymn to one of his disciples, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 
the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now verse 11, the saying is trustworthy for, and this is one of the hymns, this is one of the statements of faith in the first century church. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that we were dead and Jesus died to make us alive together with him. Yes. This is what we celebrate at Easter. This is what the Bible teaches is the good news of the gospel. And it is good news. Because the truth is, y'all, if we're not dead to start with, then the gospel isn't good news. We don't even need it. If we're not dead to start with, we don't need Jesus. If we can somehow muddle through and find our way to God, if we just change the way we think and start thinking right, that's the lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden. He told her that knowledge will make her like God, didn't he? Yes. But you know what? That's not true. The Bible says we were dead. We were dead. And Jesus came and made us alive with him. That is the good news. Anybody else think that's good news? Yes. Yes. I think that's good news. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to understand how amazing your love for us is for us. Help us to understand how lost we were, how without hope we were, how cut off from you we were. We were as hopeless as a dead corpse buried six feet under. And while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has for us that we, who were dead, would be called the children of God. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross as a willing sacrifice for me and for us. God, I am overwhelmed because I, I am learning how dead I was. I am overwhelmed by the, the, the price of your sacrifice for me who did not deserve it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Jesus, to you be all the glory. I don't want to be triumphant. I want you to be triumphant. I don't want to figure it out on my own. I want you to have all the answers. I want you to receive all the glory because you're the one that has the answers. Jesus, be glorified in my life. Be glorified first in my own heart and mind and spirit. Be glorified in my life. Be glorified in Albuquerque, be glorified in the state of New Mexico, be glorified in the United States of America, be glorified over every political party or political doctrine in the United States of America. Jesus, you be glorified. Be glorified in North America, be glorified in the Western Hemisphere, be glorified in the earth, Jesus, because you deserve it. We were dead and you came down. And you, through your death and resurrection, you bring us back to life. Amazing.
Mm. I am in wonder. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us this morning. Thank you for joining us online. I hope you found this hopefully a little challenging, but I hope you found this as a source of joy and excitement over what we're celebrating this Easter season. Listen, we believe in you, and we believe in Jesus in you, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.